Information is foundational to our democracy. Without information or facts, what do we have? Well, that's the question we're going to examine today. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of topics from propaganda to the trucker's convoy, the inquiry into the trucker's convoy, and of course, the Coots Crossing. So please join with me with my guest, Ray McGinnis. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. I'm delighted to welcome Ray McGinnis. Ray is an investigative researcher He's an author, and he's also uh, author of a, of a great-selling book around the 9-11 Commission, among other books. And he's also someone who's a senior fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy, and he takes a very critical insight into the world of facts, evidence, and even propaganda. So welcome, Ray. Thank you, David. Great to be with you. Well, Ray, I'm really excited about our conversation about... Um, truth and uh, we're going to be diving through some very interesting case studies from you know your uh, great insight and research into these uh, cases that are, are no, well known to many Canadians but I wanted to just uh, before we dive into that talk a little bit about propaganda and I know that's a big word it has a long history uh, ever since there's been people in power there's been persons who've who've sought to mislead people about the facts or information. But if you think about the word propaganda, how do you describe it, Ray? Yeah, it, it's it's putting forward a narrative based on half-truths or out-and-out -out lies. Uh, it often, often too, uh, propaganda involves uh, pushing a story in the news, which is shocking and confusing and even traumatic to, mm -hmm. uh, to the readership or the viewership. And, uh, and, and then people, ordinary citizens get quickly hooked uh, into the drama of that, of that narrative. Mm -hmm. And then um, because of the emotional fusion with the story, are not able to detach from the story they're being told, to step back and say, hey, wait a minute, what am I being told? Like the, the ability to scrutinize I mean, if propaganda is done well, the ability of the average citizen to scrutinize what they're being told and to sit back and question the narrative is almost, almost evaporates because it's so people feel uh, scared, vulnerable, uh, frightened, um, uh, angry at, at the at the the target uh, that's being accused of being responsible for the terrible story in the news. Yeah. So propaganda. I mean, there's certainly many studies and analyses about this. Certainly, one of the ones I recall well is by a famous um, uh, political uh, French theor political theorist, uh, Jacques Ellul, who spoke eloquently that propaganda is um, partial storytelling. So it's not just about the stories that you tell or the lies that you tell. It's about things that maybe you don't even talk about. Would that be a, a fair comment? Yeah. So you I mean, they're, they're, the story is being told in such a way that that the narrative assists the government uh, in power to achieve certain political ends. And there may be other aspects to that story 
that are also important to tell if there if a if a if a fair and balanced account was to be brought mm -hmm. to people's attention. But because other aspects of the story do not serve that narrative, then they are suppressed. Wow. So propaganda is really quite interesting. And and words matter, Ray. I know that you're a an author and uh a word scribe. So words do matter. But and yet in propaganda, people use words intentionally to mislead people. Is that another tactic that would be used in propaganda? Yes. I mean, all, all of a sudden, uh, uh, the type of words that are used uh, once a group is in, is in the crosshairs of a narrative. Uh, that, I mean, a, a group may be uh, previously uh, up, upheld with reverence and, and adoration and, and, and praise, and now suddenly uh, today's news story is that they are, are the scum of the earth and, and, uh, and, and the problem that we all need to solve in order to, to, to calm down and have a good, a good experience as, as a nation again. Exactly. And don't forget, Ray, about repetition. Repetition would be another one, uh, another tactic of propaganda. Just keep repeating something that even though you know is, is false, if you repeat it enough, will people believe it? Is, does that work? It works very well. Uh, I mean, I mean, Goebbels, uh, the great propagandist for for, for Hitler, uh, uh, you know, said if, if you tell if you tell a lie that's big enough, mm -hmm. and also if you repeat it often enough, most people, what happens to people, I think, psychologically, is here you have somebody who's in a position of authority that keeps banging away, insisting that something is the case, mm -hmm. something is true, and most people are going to say, well. I guess I have to believe this because here we have, uh, I mean, Americans in uh, in early 2000s, uh, Vice President Cheney, uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, the President, Condoleezza Rice, yeah. all saying there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And they kept on going on with that over and over again. And a lot of Americans, by the time uh, the U.S. went to war in March of 2003 against Iraq, thought, well, you know, 85 percent or more were in, in, in support because clearly there must be weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, my president wouldn't be telling me over again that there are if there were not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great example, Ray. Um, what I what I also find interesting is this is not a partisan issue. This is. All, all parties are guilty. In fact, I think of, of the quote by, as I recall, Winston Churchill, who said the first casualty in war is the truth. And uh, I think that's very apropos, because if you think of today's climate, where sometimes the political actors almost treat this as, as a war, that winning at all costs is, is important, then you almost treat this like a war. And then, gosh, almost the ends justify the means. So that's why propaganda is even used in 2023. Is that the sad reality, uh, Ray? I would think so. I mean, anyone who's who's been around for a while notices that in different election campaigns, provincial or or federal, that a certain party may have a great a great platform, mm -hmm. and then they get into power, um, and suddenly uh, those campaign promises are out the window, and they're carrying on with the same old. Uh, old playbook and 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 then and then people feel cynical and maybe turned off politics mm -hmm. and and the whole problem of 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 uh you know suppress i mean you know there was a time when canadian elections you'd have you know 80 percent or 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 so who'd be voting and now it's you know down around 60 62 percent who vote so so that there are real costs to 
to the cynicism of, of uh, if you have political leaders of, of, of major parties who are surrounded by people who don't want to let the leader lead from their own integrity, but mm. to lead based on political calculations, then that's where we go astray. And, yeah. and it's all over the map, whether you're right wing or left wing, doesn't matter. Yeah, well said. So why, why should we care about this issue, Ray? When you look at all your experiencing, experience looking at uh, these kinds of quote case studies of, of lots of propaganda and a lack of truth telling, <laughs> why, why should a Canadian citizen care about this? Uh, one of the hallmarks of democracy is, you know, it's free speech uh, and, and a, a, a vitalized citizenry. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh, you know, well, I think of people like Thomas Paine in the U.S. with the Revolutionary mm-hmm. War back then. He wrote in his papers about how, you know, dem- I mean, democracy is not something which you just, we just, you know, we wake up, you know, we're born into a nation with a democracy mm-hmm. and it just rolls along happily forever. Uh, every generation has to uh, take action to ensure that the democracy that they live in uh, is remaining uh, solid, that, that, that the checks and balances, you know, everything from, I mean, corruption, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are, you know, we, we've had in our own country, the sponsorship scandal and, and other scandals in the past. And, and so, and so when you have um, uh, citizens need to need to ask the tough questions uh, and, and, and I would say that there was a time in Canada where the media did that job well. There was uh, a willingness on the part of the press to ask the pertinent questions and to not shy away from them. And, and they, often they would get the good answer you needed to hear in order to, uh, to feel good about your government. And mm-hmm. sometimes you found something out that, that wasn't so great. And then maybe the government would be tossed out in the next election. But, but it seems now what we have is, uh, is a media that's, that's compliant, that's uh, that's that's cautious. That doesn't want to rock the boat, and and all the more then we need we need citizens to to snap out of their habit of having a hard day's work, going home if they turn on the nightly news, mm-hmm. watching it almost as though you're watching uh, an, another um, another TV show, and just relaxing and passively receiving the information. I think that. You know, we, we need to we need to change our habits about how we uh, digest the news because we need to not simply repeat what we're told, but we need to we need to watch it. We need to step back and observe, and and to be able to uh, to to have important kitchen conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, we end up being um, a, a nation of you know Stepford wives or something where we're just simply. Um, on automatic pilot yeah. uh, and, and carrying around unexamined premises mm-hmm. that may not be true and that could cost us even the, the kind of democracy that we, we've enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right on, Ray. Wow, we need to, we need to use our critical thinking skills. Imagine that. Um, so, it, you know, one of the, the qualifications I'd make, though, that's fascinating about our discussion about propaganda as well is that we're not talking about just, um, you know, there's always a help, there should be a healthy debate around the facts or truth. But that's not quite what we're talking about here, is it, Ray? We're talking about something that's 
um, deliberate. It's deliberately misleading, manipulating, lying, whatever you want to call it, um, your citizenry. And that's really pretty bad, isn't it? What What is happening um, more recently in our country? There, I mean, there, there was a time when 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 major headline stories like the separation of Quebec mm -hmm. uh, were in the news and uh, Canadians uh, and commentators could have a forum, uh, whether it's in someone's uh, over dining room table or or watching a panel discussion on on a major network. And you would hear a variety of points of view, mm -hmm. you know, even even a former P, uh, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau and uh, René Lévesque of the of the Parti Québécois in Quebec uh, could have vigorous debates, disagree with each other on every single point almost, and after it was all over, shake hands and maybe go out and have a drink, because they had a regard for each other. Mm -hmm. But now it seems that that when a, a, a topic is brought up in the news that's we're is banged away at twenty four seven for for weeks, months, and years on end. Uh, very, very soon, uh, people know that they're not meant to question whatever that story is, that there is a right way to understand this and that all and sundry who may dissent or have questions about it simply have no place to participate in, in the debate. And so that, I mean, that then is, a, is, a, is an indicator of a, a democracy in decline because a healthy democracy uh, like uh, former President John F. Kennedy of the United States said, uh, you know, a healthy democracy is not afraid of public discussion, mm -hmm. is not afraid of, of dissenting points of view, because in the, in the clear light of day, they can be taken on and, and people can change their minds based on that other information, or they can, or they can say no dissenting person, here's where you're wrong, and, and, and you know, so on. Right on. Yeah, well said, JFK. So I did want to turn to um, our first case study, and that's a little bit about reflecting on the, the trucker's convoy. Uh, that's certainly been a long story. There's been a lot told about it and reflected on it. And I'm really curious about um, if you can briefly summarize some of the chronology and about how that developed in Canada from your perspective, from kind of a historical point of view. How did the convoy start and what happened? So it, I mean, it, all, it all kind of begins uh, with, uh, with the lead up to the 2021 September election. Uh, in the United States in August, uh, the Center for Disease Control Director Rochelle Walensky conceded on an interview with Wolf Blitzer on CNN that actually the new vaccines didn't prevent infection or stop transmission. And you know, so it would be left for individual people to, to go ahead and get their vaccine if they think they need it or or not. But then all of a sudden, our prime minister decided in late August of 2021 that uh, that anybody who didn't get a vaccine was an anti-vaxxer. They didn't have a right to uh, to get on a plane or a train mm -hmm. or, you know, or cross the border and talked about, uh, you know, do we tolerate these people mm -hmm. in, during the campaign? And so that kind of rhetoric then just sped up over the fall and people were being told you may not be able to buy groceries uh, in, in different maritime provinces uh, and, and so on. And mm -hmm. so then um, in the kind of run up to building up more and more um, uh, kind of <laughs> uh, affect in, in, the, in the general public, in uh, November, the government, uh, federal government decided that they were going to uh, require all truck drivers that drive alone in their cabs 
that if they were going to enter Canada, that they would have to uh, be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. just on that point, though, Ray, they introduced this mandate and it was a peculiar mandate. I remember the day very well. Was there any, to this day, any medical evidence confirming why this mandate needed to be introduced for this particular group of individuals? Um, no, the, there was a, uh, uh, the, the health minister, federal health minister Duclos and uh, public health authority chief, Dr. Teresa Tam by Zoom, I think they were both by Zoom, with the health committee of, of parliament met in January of 2022. And the, uh, both, both uh, Tam and Duclos were not able to produce any data to suggest that truck drivers were spreading COVID in any way. Mm-hmm. And I want to add one little thing. It's a matter of confusion to, to many Canadians to this day. We were often told in the press that, well, the United States is also, also has mandate it's against truck drivers crossing the border. Mm-hmm. However, it was significantly different. In the United States, it, it only affected truck drivers that were part of companies where 100 or more truck drivers were part of the, of the company. So if you were a small independent operator, you could go into the United States without being impacted. And as well, I checked around the world. I mean, I don't know about maybe China and Vietnam border or China and Mongolia, because they just can't find an answer on Google search, but but people who are driving trucks are driving them you know, all across uh, Central and South America, into, in and out of Mexico, uh, all across uh, Asia, all across Africa, all across Europe, uh, because the other countries regarded truck drivers as essential to the economic well-being and the supply chains and knew that truck drivers driving by themselves were not spreading COVID. So mm-hmm. we have, I mean, Canada was really an outlier, almost unique in the whole world. When Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland was on the uh, stand at the Public Order Emergency Commission on the 24th mm-hmm. of November of last year, she was pressed about 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 the you know why the truck drivers and and she conceded that really they were trying to get the truck drivers like let's make sure the truck drivers have to be vaccinated as a signal to other Canadians who are unvaccinated that they need to get vaccinated. Mm. This was this was a uh, like a strategy to mm-hmm. signal to other unvaccinated yeah. people they need to get vaccinated. Yeah, and it's it's puzzling as well as you say because it was certainly well known public information internationally that the vaccines were not efficacious. They wouldn't present prevent transmission, um, and so uh, yeah, it was a it was a head scratcher. So, but as things unfolded, it's amazing how from coast to coast there were convoys of of trucks developing. Uh, what do you remember from that time and how they came together and coalesced in Ottawa? Uh, so the the mandate uh, was in in force on the I think around the fifteenth of January, twenty twenty two, and by the twenty the weekend of the twenty second of January, uh, uh, people uh, people were you know kind of organizing it. Uh, I think Chris Barber, Tamara Leach, and and other people in Alberta and Prince George and, and the west coast of Canada. Uh, British Columbia were uh, were organizing, and, and they, I mean, they thought, I mean, they liked to raise some funds. They thought maybe twenty thousand dollars. You know, I mean, they they had no idea whether it would be, and and also I think that they thought they would just go to Ottawa, protest a couple of uh, 
maybe uh, junior cabinet ministers would, would meet with them or some other mm-hmm. other people from Pul- Public Health Agency of Canada would, would, would have a discussion. And they may or might not agree with each other, but that they would have a discussion at least. Because what was happening was people were trying to have meetings with different officials in different municipalities and different provinces and, and get uh, members of parliament to answer phone calls. And, and there was just a, just silence, just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, four letters back and, and no satisfaction. And so that when they, they so they went to uh, to Ottawa and, and very early on, even before they left, uh, uh, I think by the 23rd of January, as, as trucks were rolling, you know, to, toward the B.C. Alberta border, you already have people in the prime minister's office and public safety minister Marco Mendocino talking about you know maybe uh, framing the protest that's 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 looming and growing as a January 6th north in reference to the uh, the protests in front of the Capitol in in Washington DC uh, in 2021 so uh, and and there was uh, you know stories on CTV uh, uh, demonizing the, the protesters you know suggestions that they were white supremacists and racists and mm-hmm. And hillbillies and insurrectionists yeah, and so on. So there was a, a decidedly clear decision made by the government at the time to portray them, uh, to demonize them. And so we did want to show a little bit of a clip here. And it was interesting that CBC even made a suggestion about who their foreign funders were. So if we could go to that clip. I don't know if it's far-fetched to ask, but but there is concern that Russian actors could be continuing to fuel things uh, as this as this protest grows, but perhaps even instigating it from from the outset. Well, again, I'm going to defer to uh, our uh, partners in the public safety, the uh, trained of, uh, officials and experts in that area. What I can tell you is that uh, we do have the police resources on site right now who are watching the conduct of this convoy very carefully and who are providing direction and guidance to uh, residents to ensure uh, that there is um, a peaceful protest, uh, but at the same time, uh, providing direction and guidance to residents. Uh, and, and obviously, it's important that Parliament continue to function. It's important that we uh, provide essential services to, uh, to Canadians and those uh, in the area. And all of that will continue on the strength of the advice that we're getting uh, from police and other partners in the public safety apparatus. This is not a convoy that is about freedom. If, if we want a gateway to freedom and getting back to normal, we need to continue to get vaccinated. That that debate has been had and is settled. That's been settled by evidence and science and data, and we'll continue to follow that in order to get there. Well, wow. so that's a, kind of the epitome of the message there that that I see. Ray is um, the message was essentially as I as I picked that up over numerous times is if you you've got to get vaccinated, and if you don't, then you're against freedom, and there's no other point of view here. Is that kind of the the central message that you picked up in your research, right? Well, that's part of it. I mean, there's there's the uh, the, the, the the CBC uh, with its report about Russian actors being behind. You know, if it had not been for Russian agents in Canada suggesting, whispering in the ears of truck drivers in in Medicine Hat or mm-hmm. or Swift Current to go to Ottawa, they'd be staying in the you know playing you know in the in the, in the bar somewhere. You know, so. 
and and the, and the CBC ombudsman um, reprimanded the, the the CBC in October of 2022, uh, saying to the to the national broadcast that they have a responsibility to their to their viewership, and that they need to report stories based on evidence. And here there was absolutely no evidence to support that allegation. So where where the heck did that come out of Ray? Is there any revelation as to why journalists would wade in so readily about Russian funding of all things? It's, it seems so absurd. I, I do not know why 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 you would have that. I mean, there there was uh, I mean there was. Uh, uh, indications that there was likely going to be perhaps uh, and there indeed was by the 24th of february or so a war between russia and the ukraine so so maybe maybe this was just one of uh, mm-hmm. a number of, of 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 things to let's let's um let's blame russia for this mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I i can only speculate is nonsense yeah it's it's utter nonsense so the the convoy picked up speed. It came to Ottawa. Um, we found out that on the ground it was uh, remarkably peaceful. Um, and in fact, if you think of uh, an incredible team of people from Bridge City News actually went to Ottawa. They decided to make that that decision to go to Ottawa and see on the ground and report from there. It was fascinating from my perspective to see the contrast in reporting from mainstream media that tried to kind of portray the, the, the convoy as, as um, well, as violent, as, as uh, unruly. Um, whereas when Bridge City News reported it, it was stunningly peaceful. And they went after the good, bad, and the ugly stories. And so uh, one of the assertions in that clip there was that somehow that, um, you know, the, the, the truckers were up to a lot of really bad things like stealing people's food and things like that. When in fact, that wasn't the case, was it, Ray, on the ground? No, you have, you have a lot of hearsay evidence. I mean, the story about uh, uh, truck drivers stealing food from uh, the Good Shepherd shelter. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, contrast with what's happening on the ground, you have... Uh, Many Ottawa citizens actually going to see. Well, what's this protest about? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the protesters are are overwhelmed with the de- generosity of people bringing food to them. They don't need to go and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mug anybody to get food because they're being brought and brought pizza. You got you've got truck truck drivers, Sikh truck drivers, and other people making food at at at, at food trucks. Uh, you know, got you've got oodles of food on site. So so there's no need for that and. And the uh, the reports of, of police, the Ottawa Police Service, the Ontario Provincial Police Intelligence Unit, mm-hmm. uh, their estimations were the shocking lack of criminality. Um, you know, peaceful. It's like a family event. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were there were thousands of children, especially swelling on the weekends when they would have like as maybe as eighteen thousand people. You'd have several thousand children who who would be there and uh, playing with you know snowballs, hockey. Large Lego, uh, bouncy castles, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very peaceful affair, um, and the reports around violence, I think, were fascinating as well. Um, those didn't really have any basis uh, of fact either. They were were they all made up? What, what, what's your research tell you on that one, Ray? Well, during during the length of the protest before before the day that that it got shut down by the mounted police and others. Uh, I understand there were four or five 
people in downtown Ottawa who arrested for assault. But those seem to be concurrent to the protest and not by people who were protesters that were assaulting anyone. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, I mean, like Tamara Leach and, and others who, who've been arrested on mischief or charges or, or counseling mischief charges are, are the poster persons of, of, you know, who are hitting the, 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 the headline news. Mm-hmm. If, there, if there was somebody who, who had assaulted a police officer in Ottawa, we would surely know the name of that person mm-hmm. and they surely would have been charged. It would be the, on the front page of the Ottawa citizen and every other newspaper coast to coast. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't anyone who was a, a, a protester who, who punched a police officer. And also you have uh, all of the protesters that had to sign a code of conduct, uh, be, you know, before, you know, at, you know, once they arrived and if they didn't agree to it, they had to leave. And, and you also have block captains uh, who are in, in constant contact with the local police to make sure that, I mean, if, if the police knew of anything uh, that was, you know, that, that bordered on criminal activity of, of any kind, they were to call, you know, former army captain Tom Morazzo or a number of other people mm-hmm. right away. But mm-hmm. Tom Morazzo says he never got phone calls about, about any kind of, of criminal behavior and 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 uh, the intelligence unit OPP uh, staffer Patrick Morris said uh, he was shocked by the lack of criminality. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. So you have that kind of information facts regarding the convoy, and in the meantime, there's another narrative. You used the word narrative earlier to describe propaganda. So I want to play a clip from from the Prime Minister um, about that. Canadians were shocked and frankly, disgusted by the behavior displayed by some people protesting in our nation's capital. I want to be very clear. We are not intimidated by those who hurl insults and abuse at small business workers and steal food from the homeless. We won't give in to those who fly racist flags. We won't cave to those who engage in vandalism or dishonor the memory of our veterans. So there you have it. There's a kind of, a, again, another summation of a narrative that portrays the, the convoy as, um, frankly, a bunch of racists and violent and, and thieves. So what's your take on that? What was going on there? Why would the prime minister speak in those terms that wasn't really based on fact? It didn't appear to be. Well, you've got... Uh all of this uh, narrative about, about, you know, the, I mean, the, the flag, like the, the Nazi flag. I mean, I listened to uh, a former CBC, Globe and Mail, CTV, long career in, in the press, uh, Rodney Palmer testifying before the National Citizens uh, Inquiry. And he talked about how he was walking up and down the length of Wellington Street and other streets in the center of, of all of the protests, never once saw a Nazi flag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's that's what I've also had lots of people telling me as well. Still of it running on the CBC and maybe other networks, mm-hmm. and uh, and it uh, I gather that the person who owns the photo is connected to uh, I think a former uh, photographer connected to former Prime Minister Paul Martin. So so it, it's just really curious how that how that how that flag, 
I mean, what you have are a sea of Canadian flags from coast to coast and, and in the protest itself, nothing but Canadian flags. And yet this one Nazi flag ends up being, uh, you know, what, what the prime minister focuses on. And it yeah. seems that the origin of that flag may well be connected to the government. Wow. So we, we don't really know quite happened. I'm, I'm really curious about it because, because it all seemed like it was a kind of a, a way to sl slander a large group of very peaceful, patriotic Canadians. Is that your take on it as well? Yes, and I and I don't know the the, the kind of the trajectory, but it just seemed uh, too convenient that this that this would be the story. And uh, you know, you've got uh, protesters on 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 the, the day of of the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Uh, giving uh, police officers red roses, and and there's, you know the whole the streets are strewn with red roses, and mm -hmm. and, uh, and 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 the uh, the the um, the people who are concerned about security are describing it like a family affair, mm -hmm. uh, reading uh, Bible, uh, you know, prayers and Muslim mm -hmm. prayers, Christian prayers, so on. So uh, it, it's just such a disconnect. And Rupa Subramania, who you know, yes. with the national and others, you know, went there and, and interviewed, you know, 100, 150 people, uh, all of all uh, backgrounds, ethnicities, uh, uh, and 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 it's simply uh, the story that we were hearing in the mainstream media just doesn't add up compared to these live on the street reports. And it really is kind of sad because you have this portrayal of a group of protesters, and and to their credit, they were quite peaceful. Um, and so the real issues almost got, a, they got drowned out. Um, they were raising legitimate questions around uh, these mandates. And, and to their credit, they inspired not only a nation, but many parts of the world to start changing and dropping those mandates. Uh, that did happen, I believe, with Saskatchewan and Alberta shortly after. But it is remarkable how in this uh, desperate attempt by different uh, government decision makers seemingly to portray them as violent and untoward, there was no kind of civil reaching out to them. Um, well, yeah. I, I, and I just find it bizarre because if you look in history during the Great Depression, there were uh, demonstrators that came across the country to meet with R.B. Bennett and Bennett sat down with them and, and talked with them and, and listened to them. Didn't necessarily agree but that's how our political process is to work. But that didn't happen. It's like they wanted to create a political wedge and vilify these people top to end. And uh, under testimony on the 25th of November at the, at the commission in Ottawa, uh, commission staff asked Prime Minister Trudeau, you know, when, when he was, you know, when they, were they first thinking about invoking the Emergencies Act? And he said, well, from the very beginning. So... Wow. So, uh, so if that's the case, wouldn't it be uh, helpful uh, if you want to invoke the Emergencies Act from the very beginning and, and are really eager to find some reason to, to actually invoke the act and, and say that we have to invoke it because it's the last resort. We can't call in the army. We can't have call have declared a, a riot or anything else. Let's just go full full on with the nuclear option. Uh, it's it's beneficial then if you want to demonize the protesters as uh, as uh, deplorables who cannot be who who, who nobody can talk with mm -hmm. you know even though even though the city of Ottawa was having senior staff talking with the protesters and had a plan in place 
to remove 75% of all the vehicles by the end of the 16th of February. And wouldn't, you know, you don't need trucks to tow vehicles who've already left the building, you know, left the block. Yeah, exactly. So to be clear, let's just reiterate that again, because uh, dates do matter. History matters. On February 16th, there was a deal set up before that to get 75% of the vehicles off and to kind of bring this to a close. Is that a fair comment, Ray? What, yeah. what happened? Yeah, so so on the weekend of the 11th to 13th, you have negotiations between, hush-hush negotiations between senior, uh, you know, protest leaders and key people uh, in, in, the, uh, in the city of Ottawa. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are, have, have arranged for a schedule in which 75% uh, of, the, of the protest vehicles will have left the city of Ottawa by the end of, the, of Wednesday, the 16th of February, which two days after the Emergencies Act was declared. Mm -hmm. And by noon on the, uh, on the, on the 14th, uh, about 104 vehicles had indeed left, and the city of Ottawa knew that because they took photographs of each of the license plates of the departing vehicles. So they were on schedule, and and so um, and 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 the testimony of a number of the, of the staff uh, from the city of Ottawa during the commission was that uh, they were blindsided by this, uh, you know, decision uh, by by the government, and it was also stopping putting up barricades and stopping vehicles from leaving on the 15th. Sorry, can you repeat that, Ray? You're saying somebody was stopping them from leaving? Yeah, on, by the, on the 15th, you have, uh, I think, the Parliamentary uh, Police Service, whatever it's called, mm -hmm. and, and I, whoever. Anyway, there were barricades that were going up so that trucks couldn't even leave. So, so, well, so they uh, wanted them to, to stay there then? Stay there so that, yeah, so, so it, it just, it just doesn't add up. If you want people to leave and they're saying, Hey, I'm ready to leave. You, you, you'd want them to leave. I mean, even if you think you've got like a, uh, if you're having a house party and you've got someone who's a rowdy yeah. guest right. and they, and they say, I'm going to leave, you don't want to barricade the door. Mm -hmm. But they didn't do that. No, no, they, they, they seem to want to have, have, uh, have a, a set to so that the government could, could look good had had prevented uh, uh, in their in their words an insurrection or a coup from mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. So the um, things move along, and and as a lead up to that, we recall that they did raise a lot of money on crowdfunding, and of course later uh, the government uh, worked to uh, do many things, including freezing their bank accounts um, of people of many people, not all that donated to that cause. I think that sent a frankly, a chill wave right across the country and around the world, that you had a government that was going to take that kind of extreme measures uh, to work with many members of the banking community, no less, and they fell in line and they, they froze those millions of bank accounts. Is that correct? There are millions of dollars raised, I think, uh, I think 24, 25 Mm -hmm. million dollars a mix of uh, cryptocurrency and several you know give send go and the other one uh, all all together uh but i think you have about you have somewhere you know with 300 or, or or so uh actual accounts that are frozen uh but but with the message that you know more more will more will come and and what happened was the um uh, there were people down in Wall Street saying we don't look, we don't like the look of what's happening here. We thought that Canada was a, 
a, a you know a, a not a third world country you know is this me like venezuela or something and so there was a phone call uh keith wilson the lawyer for for the protesters tells it that i told viva fry that uh that there was a phone call to the pmo and uh the message was uh we don't like what you're doing you've got 24 hours to turn this around and 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 rescind this and then a day later the prime minister saying well you know things have moved along now to such a state that we don't have to keep on freezing the bank accounts so then then they they stopped doing it but it seems that uh that the confidence of the international banking community in Canadian banking mm-hmm. and 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 people's ability to to have uh investments and uh and bank accounts that are that are that are <laughs> accessible was shaken yeah indeed no it was a uh, outrageous situation and certainly never never had occurred in our history before and uh i think a real wake up call to the lengths by which this government was prepared to go to go after people that would support such a, a peaceful protest so the the protest did pretty much wrap up and then we had uh, the invocation of the act. And what was the basis in which they um, invoked the Emergency Measures Act? Well, the, the basis for invoking the act, um, uh, you know, serious, serious acts of violence was, was probably the thing that they try to hang it on because there was no espionage or foreign interference or sabotage. And the really, I mean, CSIS itself said that there was no plot to overthrow the government. Nonetheless, uh, they, you know, there were, there were rumors about, uh, you know, maybe there are, are trucks in Ottawa, the, the protesters that have guns in them. It didn't turn out to be the case at all. Uh, and then there were four people who were arrested in, in, on the border town of Coots, Alberta, across in Montana mm-hmm. on charges of conspiracy to, to commit murder and all of that, it was sort of a mix of things. Plus, also the Ambassador Bridge, which at Windsor, Detroit, which had already been solved on the 13th, but nonetheless, it was sort of thrown in as, oh, there's so much chaos in Ottawa and and Windsor, Detroit, and, and Coots, Alberta, and maybe other places. We just have to declare a national emergency because mm-hmm. what else can we do? Yeah. So what I find fascinating then is they they wrapped up the um, the remaining um, protesters by forcibly removing them from uh, the area. And uh, th- that's well known. And the images of that, including going after uh, Métis grandmas with their, with their walkers, with, uh, with horses and all the rest. But what I find fascinating is that it was obvious that the, the evidence to support the invocation of the Emergencies Act was not there. And then by law, they had to, um, being that the government had invoked the act, about within a year, they had to hold some type of judicial inquiry. And it's a particular inquiry because it's really not um, in terms of a, a typical rules of evidence type of inquiry. It was an inquiry looking at whether or not the government was justified. And Ray, it's quite amazing. You went there to Ottawa. You actually were an observer there at the inquiry to observe what was going on. What's the high level? What's the bottom line as you look at that inquiry? Well, I mean, there's there's the there's the police testimony one after the next uh, police uh, officer, uh, intelligence officer testifying to the you know peaceful assembly um, to you know no violence um, that the um, 
that the thresholds for uh, triggering the Emergencies Act were not met. And then you have uh, key uh, senior government officials like the National Security Advisor, the Prime Minister, Jody Thomas, being taken through the, um, the items for triggering a, a national emergency. And she's asked about, about serious violence. She says, well, there was, she changes it from serious, says, well, there was continuous violence. And then when she's pressed to point out what was the continuous violence, honking of horns. Now, that, I mean, that was continuous violence as honking, honking horns. Yeah. Now, I mean, there are people who who put blogs up uh, who were residents right downtown who report that, you know, by the 3rd of February, the honking would stop by 6 p.m. And and then the injunction by the provincial justice in Ottawa on the 7th of February said no more honking. And that was, you know, a, a red line in the sand and the, and the protests, captains at each block made sure if there was a rogue truck driver who was going to honk uh, that they were going to be told, you stop it, buddy, or else we're going to cut your air horn. And they did stop. And so that's why the injunction by the justice was was uh, renewed on the 16th of February, because they had abided by the horn injunction. Wow. Uh, so, you know, so that's, you know, and she also pointed out, well, there was diesel fumes. Well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, there was pollution. Well, I mean, there there is pollution uh, at times in over a hundred First Nation reserves. There, there are First Nations that have been without uh, clean drinking water for twenty five years in this country, and it's still not being addressed. That's pollution. So, so what are they talking about in terms of the need to declare a national emergency on on that basis? So, you know, you've done an, a deep, deep dive on all the data and information table at the inquiry, and have you been able to find any? reasonable pretext that the government invoked the Emergency Measures Act? No, if, I mean, I, I live in Vancouver, and in, after Van, the Vancouver Canucks lost to the Boston Bruins, I think around 2010, we had uh, 814 arrests, 60 businesses on fire, 15 to 20 vehicles on fire. And, you know, it was, it was a riot, and they declared a riot. But throughout the protests in Ottawa, at no point did the police determine that they thought that the protests in Ottawa constituted a riot and they had to say, okay, folks, clear out in the next hour, we're declaring this a riot. It wasn't a riot. Mm -hmm. So, and that's one of the things that you, you do before you declare an emergencies act. You can also bring in uh, the military and bring some, some tanks into town if you need to, but they didn't think that they needed to do that. You know, so, so the, all of the, you know, they have it backwards. It seems that, the, you know, the prime minister was honest when he said, you know, how early did you think of invoking the Emergencies Act? Well, you know, from the very beginning. And, and it seems that they, you know, that they wanted to have, I don't know, the, the, the national melodrama of a, mm -hmm. of a, of a national emergency. Uh, it's, it's a complete uh, hijacking of what uh, the use of the Emergencies Act should be. And now you have an inquiry with a report which recommends that they remove the four named triggers for declaring a national emergency so it can just be left to the whim of a, um, of a, of a government to just say, well, we're feeling uh, nervous about what's happening here, so let's declare a national emergency. So th this is so wrong. We, we Not only did we get a report that was, uh, and I did take the time to read the report, that was really based on on really nonsense. It wasn't supported by really findings in fact around this whole case. The whole pretext for the invocation was wrong. And meanwhile, there's a suggestion that it be opened up even more. So if, if the government wants to invoke that, basically the War Measures Act, that's really what it was before, 
they can do so with complete impunity. I mean, this is ridiculous, is it not? It is. And when you have uh, Justice Rouleau in, in the report uh, deciding to wave away uh, the comments by the intelligence unit officer, Patrick Morris and, and Thomas Carrick and others uh, who, who call into question the, the statements by politicians in the media as being problematic and completely in conflict with what they were seeing on the ground, hmm. uh, uh, the lack of violence that they point to, and then having the commissioner say, well, uh, there was violence because we had uh, a couple of Ottawa citizens who complained about, quote, phantom honking. You know, they, they, you know, they left the sound of honking horns weeks after. We, I, you know, I, I don't like uh, car alarms or anything myself, but but nonetheless, that is a noise infraction, which can be dealt with under the laws of the land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's. Are you surprised then, Ray, that um, this past week there was a, um, a polling analysis that came out that only one third of Canadians have any confidence in the federal government? So two thirds of Canadians don't have confidence in the government. Uh, I don't know how many of those two thirds that don't have confidence are very well familiar with uh, the backstory to how uh, dubious all the allegations were against the protesters or the story of what really came out in the commission and, and the reports, uh, you know, fail. Uh, yeah. but, but I think that there are many things going on, uh, the price of housing, the price of living, uh, mm -hmm. all manner of things, plus the uh, mm -hmm. tamping down on freedom of speech and so on. So, I know that that um, for a lot of politicians, safety issues are, are of grave concern. No one wants to hurt another Canadian. But in this context, was it also kind of, I'm of different minds. I'm not sure what to make of this. So much of it is, 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 is uh, speculation, but there's other points of evidence from the text that we've seen. But it's very clear that a lot of decision makers are, I'm thinking particularly in the UK, where we found out the texts and and uh, intimate details and emails of decision makers that they were consciously using fear as a way to manipulate the uh, population and to really drive home a narrative that they were in control of this crisis, that they somehow um, were protecting the uh, public and that that would lead to a better popularity in the polls. Is that too cynical a view of things or, or what do you think the evidence seems to suggest? Well, is, 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 it, is it Matt Hancock in, in the UK who was, uh, Yes. Connected to uh, to the to health, and who who in one of his emails or texts talked about. You think he said, "When do we deploy the next variant?" Mm -hmm. Which which is not what you would do if if suddenly uh, a, a virus is 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 morphing into something else, uh, mm -hmm. not on your schedule, but uh, but on its schedule. Yeah. So you're not deploying it. You're kind of like looking out for it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So so and there was a report in the Ottawa Citizen that that there were people involved in Canadian intelligence and the Canadian forces who are wanting to learn some of the lessons that they'd used in terms of um, uh, messaging in Afghanistan and, and, and using that uh, to nudge Canadians toward, uh, you know, getting, as, getting up to speed with their vaccination. Now, even if we have, it, have the vaccine, we're still in grave danger of getting the virus notwithstanding our vaccination, which yeah. is just uh, very puzzling and confusing. It is. I think what also I find um, really quite disconcerting about this example of the truckers is how the law seemed to be used to um, as, a, as a political weapon against fellow citizens 
who came forward in a peaceful manner, who were raising questions that were actually following the science. They were thoughtfully saying these mandates don't make sense anymore. And our freedoms also matter. Uh, the freedom to travel, the freedom to speak, the freedom to be able to uh, assemble and protest. And yet those rights were actively undermined using the law. And that's often referred to as lawfare. It's the evil use of law um, against um, your political opponent to, to put them in jail. So in the aftermath of the truckers' convoy, we saw that happen, in my humble opinion. I've never seen this before in our country, in this dear country of Canada. Have you? No. And, and uh, again, it's like the government, uh, uh, the prosecutors, whatever, are going to the wall and treating everything as if it's a five-alarm fire. Mm-hmm. And and this is not uh, you know the way to to you know to properly uh, re- regard uh, you know the situation at all. It's it's all histrionics and cat- catastrophizing, um, and and we don't want to have. I mean, it, it's almost like the chicken little of political leadership, where mm-hmm. where you're running around saying the sky is is falling and trying to get all the other barnyard animals to be upset and and and, and worried and and scared as well. But, you know, the, you know, what we needed was calm leadership mm-hmm. to take, to take a realistic assessment and to say, well, if the, if the police on the ground are saying that there's no, there's no danger here, there's no, there's no uh, planned coup. Uh, these people have the people who are, who are here have no histories of criminality and so on. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just uh, the, the disconnect between what was being said by Marco Mendocino and the prime minister and others and what was happening on the ground is just, uh, I mean, we have to correct the historical record because the media failed to tell the story. Well said. So speaking of the story, another part of this interesting case study, if I can call it, is the whole issue of border crossing at Coots uh, in southern Alberta. So if you could lay out a little bit of the background, Ray, what was that situation about? So there, there were uh, numbers of protests that, uh, that sprung up across the country at different border points in support of the convoy in Ottawa once it got established. Mm-hmm. And one of these was at the uh, Coots, Alberta, Sweetgrass, Montana border point and uh, nearby Milk River, Alberta. And... Uh, and the protesters uh, had been, um, by, by the 1st of February, Pr- Premier Jason Kenney had accused the protesters of, of having assaulted a police officer. And it turned out uh, later that uh, the local spokesperson for the RCMP, Corporal Curtis Peters, said actually the, uh, the altercation was between two civilians and had nothing to do with the police at all. But, but never mind, maybe Kenney was missing was ill-advised, but in any event, it was another part of a kind of a, a story that gets out there that people still repeat to this day. And then there was uh, uh, a uh, four four men, two who were who were schoolhood chums, and the other two who who they had none of them they had never met together as a foursome before uh, uh, before the the, the Coots protest. And they uh, and these four men were uh, arrested variously on the evening of the of the. 13th of February and around noon hour on the 14th in Calgary and accused uh, initially of mischief over $5,000. But then by the end of the day on the 14th, uh, 
they were accused of conspiring to commit murder of RCMP officers. Wow. So these were very serious charges. And that's exactly during the same time as things are happening in Ottawa as well. Is that right? It is. And the story in Coots regarding the the weapons uh, that were then showcased with an RCMP cruiser behind them was sort of exhibit, well, if you don't think that what's happened in Ottawa is bad enough and you don't think that the the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, Detroit is bad enough. Well, here's here's these people who've been arrested in Coots, and it's sort of a, you know, uh, you know, it's it's our it's our uh, okay. it's our goal in the in the first period in the in the in the overtime, and we we've clearly made the case for the Emergencies Act, if nothing else, it okay. was sort of the way it was presented. We do want to show you a clip on that uh, Coots blockade. Go on blocking the border crossing until all COVID restrictions were lifted. But protest organizers say this changed things. A cache of weapons, including long guns, handguns, and body armor. And these weapons were brought by people who had the intent on causing harm. 13 people were arrested. Most now face charges of mischief and weapons possession. Three have also been charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Our message has been one of peace, peaceful protest, and to keep that message strong, we felt the best decision was to move out. As protesters left Coots at a second protest camp near Milk River, police took names and collected information. Still under investigation, who brought the weapons to Coots and what was their intent? So again, what what what's the reading on that, Ray? What happened at Coots there? Because they, I know that the, the protests were very peaceful and yet all of a sudden you have these graphic pictures of these what looks like very serious weapons. Um, what's your take on this, Ray? What happened? Earlier in, in February, for I think a period of about six days, the border actually had been opened up because there was some progress on negotiations and then that didn't continue to be the case. And uh, all of a sudden on the evening of the 13th, uh, like there were police choppers, um, uh, you know, Chris Carbert and Chris Lysick and, uh, and uh, uh, Tony Olianik uh, were arrested the evening of the 13th. And then Jerry Morin was arrested around noontime in Calgary on the 14th. I mean, Chris Carbert knew that the other first two had been arrested late in the evening of the 13th. And his response, uh, as someone who's allegedly trying to trying to go off and have a, a Bonnie and Clyde shootout with the police, is to go to bed, and then you know, and and he's found in his trailer sleeping, and then the next, and then the next day, the fourth person who's supposed to be involved in this uh, in this plot to to shoot RCMP officers uh, is is involved in in you know go, going about his work day in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of them were arrested unarmed, uh, and uh, and we're, we're we're meant to believe that that the four of them met up for the first time ever as a foursome in Coots, uh, assessed the situation, thought, well, there's four of us, and there's about a hundred at least RCMP officers with fifty cruisers. We think that maybe we should start a you know a, a shootout with with the police and with the cache of weapons. Notice these are not sniper weapons. These are mostly long, you know, these are hunting rifles. Yes. And they're also uh, set up, uh, you know, they're not properly bagged, not properly, you know, forensic evidence with DNA and fingerprinting. 
Uh, and, and also the RCMP were at that point in the news that was saying that there were unknown others, maybe uh, uh, giving direction from other, uh, you know, other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Well, if there are also unknown other people, I mean, maybe, maybe if there were other people who were involved beyond the four, mm-hmm. wouldn't you want to safely secure the, the, the evidence of, these, of this cache of weapons so that you could trace the, trace the gun to somebody in, mm-hmm. in, uh, elsewhere in the prairies or in Ontario or wherever? Yeah, so to be clear, Ray, if those weapons were uh, taken under custody, custody, they would be carefully um, bagged up so that you could protect any DNA evidence on, on the weapon itself. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, I, I've, mm-hmm. I've listened to uh, Donald Best, who's a former Toronto police detective and sergeant, mm-hmm. and he talks about how how precariously the guns are leaning against the the the, uh, the table. I mean, one bump and a whole bunch of them would fall to the ground. It seems to him, and I agree that it's more of a photo op mm-hmm. uh, than a serious way of of handling crucial evidence. Yeah. And so it, it's just, see, it, I mean, contrast that with what was done with, uh, with the, with the, with the, sh- the shooter of, uh, of multiple people in Nova Scotia a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And the RCMP took months before they released any photos or display of any weapons because out of a concern of forensic integrity. Mm-hmm. So, so the, you're raising really important questions then. Um, and, and so where are these uh, persons the four in terms of, of prison now are they are they being held in detention? They're being held uh, in remand centers, which are mostly intended for people who are in transit. Uh, but they're they're in the remand centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in uh, places where you can't go outside. Uh, so uh, uh, they're yeah they're they uh, they I mean they've been they have these charges. Uh, they've been in. Uh, in custody for over 565 days or so. Uh, they don't have a trial date yet. So, so it, how it, long have they been in prison now? I think, I mean, around 565 days, by, uh, just sort of just guessing about that. So, so um, clearly they're sending the signal that these are very dangerous individuals. Is that right? That's, 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 the, that's the message that's there. Mm-hmm. Now you've got also you've got people who've been arrested in the interim who are you know f- murder a police officer in Toronto and so on and they get out on bail you know the next day. I mean people who get out on bail may get out on conditions. Maybe they have to wear an ankle bracelet or whatever. Yes, right. Uh, but but you know uh, you know but I mean, I mean and also I mean these people are not flight risks because you know their names and identity you know you couldn't get on a plane you know they wow. you know so. So they're not they're not going to leave the country, so you know uh, so it's so it's it's just uh, it, it seems that that the message, the the punishment and the punitive characterization of them in the media is the message. I mean, uh, you also have a situation where uh, the the defense for there's four different defense lawyers for these four different individuals, and there is a a criminal code one application to the judge by the defense lawyers regarding the conduct of the crown in the way it's conducted the case, uh, which, which raises concerns on the part of the defense regarding both gross misconduct and possibly crime fraud. Mm. 
I, I am not in a position to comment on any of that. And there are documents that are sealed, but there is an important sealed envelope that the defense lawyers have seen, which they want the judge in Lethbridge to open. And the judge has now decided that they will open this envelope in the weeks ahead after they come back from a holiday. And then uh, something else may, may, may come forward that will, will take this whole, whole case in a new direction. But certainly uh, since uh, before the Magna Carta, going back to the assize or seize of Clarendon under Henry II in England in 1166, uh, people have, have been assured that if they're charged with serious crimes, that they can answer their accusers in a, in a trial and have a speedy trial, not just to be left to, to be in jail for, for years on end. No, indeed. This seems like it's dragging on a long time. There needs to be a speedy trial. People need to have justice and justice also needs to be seen to be done. So in this case, we're going to keep our eyes on that uh, case. But I, I think that, again, it's another fascinating example of um, what really is the narrative and what is factually based and what isn't. Uh, so I, I think you bring a healthy skepticism and uh, a, a research to bear on these. So my question to you, Ray, would be, what are policy changes that need to happen so these things do not happen again? Um, and what can citizens do? Well, I think that we, we need to have, um, I mean, as far as the Emergencies Act, we need to have really solid checks and balances regarding um, what, uh, what consists of, an emer of a national emergency. Mm -hmm. we need, you know, I mean, before a national emergency happens, if it's the last, if it's the Emergencies Act is the last resort, you have to already have been able to show that the police have declared a certain uh, uh, protest, a riot, and they weren't able to handle it. Uh, you also need to be able to show that you've already brought in the, the army and they couldn't handle it. And then you declare a national emergency, perhaps. Right. Uh, and, and you also have to be able to, to, to have uh, politicians be held accountable for the, for the cat catastrophizing statements that they're making to the press. You don't go on talking about, my God, they're, they're using children as human shields because some child is having a hamburger in, in the cab beside one of their parents. Mm -hmm. This is not the Syrian civil war. Yeah. And, exactly. and it seems that this is the, 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 uh, what, you know, what Canadians learned from this is that, is that, uh, is that a bunch of people who are, who are, in my view, quite ungrounded in their in their hysteria and, and catastrophizing are the people in charge. And that is not what you want for solid, responsible leadership. We need responsible government. We were not getting responsible government. So we need we need that. And we need to have. Um, well, we you know, we uh, I think I mean, I've mentioned I've mentioned how, you know, basic, you know, basic protocols regarding bail. If someone's accused of a serious crime, they must be assumed as innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. And uh, and even if someone has to pay $100,000 or have a, an ankle bracelet, they should be able to go out on bail. It, certainly if if other if if unarmed people are arrested with with allegations, uh, then people who who are charged with murder where someone is dead and and there's the gun, I mean, are able to go out on bail. I mean, what kind of a, a double standard are we operating under? And yeah. no, I agree. So when you turn to citizens, how do we 
um, engage in this, uh, what is sometimes a confusing system where it almost seems like our government is the source of misinformation and propaganda. Um, how does how does a citizen navigate in that kind of environment? I think that we as citizens need to practice media literacy skills. We need to pay attention to the stories in the news, the headline stories that grab our attention. If, if we are feeling especially emotionally pulled in a, in a strong way by a story, we need to say, okay, I notice I'm feeling scared or agitated or angry about this mm -hmm. story. And then we need to give ourselves a, a task, which is to say, okay, I've just finished watching the CBC or Global or CTV or reading the Toronto Star, the Edmonton Sun, and I feel the following things as a result of their report. Mm -hmm. But now I'm going to assign myself a task, which is to find out in the next week or two what any other sources of, of media out there are saying that provides a different angle, a different slant. Not necessarily that that other media source will be something that I decide to land on as definitive either, but at least to allow myself to grapple with some contrasting points of view so that I can have a discussion uh, by myself or with other people that I, that I trust to, to have a civil conversation with so that I can think about what's happening around me. Otherwise, we are simply held captive to... Um, to narratives, uh, to, to, uh, to shocking stories in the news that may not be uh, being brought uh, to the fore and, and, and told to us uh, out of the best democratic traditions, you know, because unfortunately human beings, including those in leadership, sometimes want more power. And, and sometimes more power for them means less power and less freedom for us. I think it's very well said, Ray. It's um, we need critical thinking more than ever. And and the truth does really matter. So I want to thank you, Ray McGinnis, um, a senior fellow at Frontier and uh, re investigative researcher. We're so glad that you could join us today and talk about propaganda and also uh, in the age of, of 2023. Well, great to be with you, David. A pleasure to be part of Frontier and, and thanks so much. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.